Welcome to Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. Richard's going to take the next few minutes to share some great words of hope, insight, humor, and relevance. In today's lost and searching world, that's something everyone desperately needs to hear. Speaking of that, we'd love to keep this conversation going with you anytime through our website, richardellistalks.com. In fact, there's so many ways to connect with us from there that you really need to check it out for yourself, richardellistalks.com. But right now, let's go ahead and get things off and running with today's talk. Here's Richard Ellis. The title of today's message is Birthday Suit. We all start in what? Our birthday suit. Nothing. We come in that way and we leave that way physically, but today I want to talk to you about not leaving that way spiritually. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I like to go back to Genesis a lot of times and start there because it kind of all started there and got screwed up there from the beginning. And everything that happened after that has a lot to do with what happens, honestly, in kind of the first few chapters of Genesis where the whole thing gets messed up royally by Adam and Eve. We put most of the responsibility not on Eve for the mess up, but on Adam. And if you go back and see, God creates everything. He puts man in this perfect environment, this perfect garden. Adam and Eve are together. They got everything. They got every tree imaginable. There's, you know, there's a tree they can't eat from. They eat of that tree. And then if you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, God comes, not like he didn't know where they are, but he comes looking for them. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And then these next few phrases are very interesting. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I think we still hear his voice, but I think the problems are still the same. I'm afraid because I'm naked, so I hide myself. Because there is something we can't fix. We come in naked, and sooner or later, you know, in my house, I got nothing but women. I got a wife and three little girls, and there's a lot of women. But I've noticed something through the years that each of those women, at a certain point along the way, the girls especially, reached a point where, you know what, I wasn't washing their hair anymore. There's a line that's crossed where it's not appropriate. And they realized, it's not that they didn't know they were naked before, but you realize, you know what, I'm a woman, you're a man, this is done. And there is a need to protect and to cover and to stay away. And nowadays, not just for men, but from some women even. So we're very aware of these things. But you can cover up that nakedness. You can cover up that part of your life physically. But there is a spiritual aspect of this where we are completely exposed. And the same fear, the same challenge that Adam had when God went looking for him, we have today. We hear him, but we're afraid because we know we're naked and we go and hide. And I don't know where you're hiding, what hole you've crawled into, but you may be hiding from the God of the universe and may not know why, and we're going to address some of this today. George Bernard Shaw said, we're ashamed of everything that is real about us. Ashamed of ourselves, of our relatives, of our incomes, of our accents, of our opinions, of our experience, just as we're ashamed of our naked skins. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. 
And we'll pick up here with verse 11. The writer here has been talking to him about resting, about this rest that the people in the wilderness that were supposed to get in the promised land, they never entered the rest. They sinned, and God left them out there, put them out there for 40 years till a whole generation died, and then the rest of them got to go in and enter into this rest. That was in a physical sense. He's talking here in a spiritual sense and an eternal sense as well. But let's pick up in Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And then look at verse 12, and some people memorize this, maybe you've never heard this in your life, but it says, for the word of God is living and powerful. I can give you my opinion, I can tell you what I think, but this is like a scalpel in a surgeon's hand. I don't care how nice the doctor is, how good his bedside manner is, how much he makes, how well he's trained. He got no knife, he's got nothing. And if he can't use that knife, he ain't going to help you very much. The word of God is like a knife. And what happens when you gather in a place like this or sit somewhere and listen to the word of God and the spirit of God mixed with that, something goes on. And I cannot explain it. I can't make it happen. All I can do is read the words. But God says, okay, if you're going to honor the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you're not going to back off of my word, the world's not interested in my words. They're interested in God's words. What does God have to say? So when you're answering people's questions, they say, well, what do you think I ought to do? Take them to the book. Tell them what God says they ought to do, not what you think they should do. Because I'm going to get you into nothing but trouble. Find out what God says. And when you open this book, for some reason, somehow, miraculously, it happens to me, it's happened to you, and maybe it'll happen to you today. Something will be read and you go, oh my gosh, I feel like I've just been completely exposed. There's a reason, and he says it right here. The word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God has a way, when you hear it, of weaseling its way, getting down inside of you somewhere where you don't want anybody to go. You don't want anybody to know. And the reason people stay away from church or stay away from the Bible or stay away from hearing anything about God and his word is they don't like what happens. You don't want to hear what God's word says. Now, I'm not talking about whacking you over the head with a Bible and just beating you to death with it. The scripture also talks about speaking the truth in love. But even when the truth is spoken in love, it can be painful. Now, thank God for his spirit, for grace that, in my opinion, is kind of a spiritual anesthesia of sorts. So when he goes cutting on you, it just doesn't kill you. Because there's stuff in my life and in your life, when God comes after us with his word, by his spirit, it can be extremely painful. I don't like what he says. I don't like what I see when he cuts me open. And so I do what? I try to cover. I try to hide because I'm afraid if God actually sees it and I acknowledge it, then I'm going to be in big trouble. You're going to be in worse trouble. I'm in worse trouble when I don't acknowledge it. Let him operate. You say, well, I'm in a really bad place, Richard. I've got terrible stuff going on. I'm in all kind of mess. Let him operate. Men are the most stubborn species God ever made, men especially. I mean, I'm not big about medicine and doctors, and I'm okay, and, you know, I forget there's even something called ibuprofen. I'll get sore or something, you know, my age, and you, just, you, know, you just get sore doing stuff. And Rebecca will say, well, did you take some ibuprofen? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't. I forgot that. You know, I didn't think of it as an option. I don't want any medicine. I don't want any help. But you know what? You're getting enough pain. You're getting enough problem. You say, you know what, doc? Do something. Hiding from God's not going to fix anything. 
At some point, you got to show up and you say, God, I'm tired of hiding, not in the garden anymore, but out here in the world, I'm coming to you and I'm going to find people, get somebody around me to help me and to guide me. And no matter how painful it is, it can't be worse than what I've got now, which is nothing. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to die this way. Help me, God. And then he takes his word and he begins to operate and to go in to cut out things and do what needs to be done. And this scripture, as it says, last part of verse 12, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He knows what you're thinking, why you're thinking it. He gets down to the nitty gritty of your heart, your life, your soul, your motivations, your intents. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. Then look at the next verse, 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, let me tell you something, whether you know this or not, you can't hide. There is nowhere to hide. And there really is no reason to hide unless you're unwilling to admit your sin, unless you're unwilling to admit your guilt, unless you're unwilling to confess that something's wrong and you need help. There is no reason to hide, and there is nowhere to hide. When God went looking for Adam and Eve, it's not that he didn't know where they were. He wanted them to admit that they were hiding that they were afraid, that they were naked, that they were ashamed. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen to what he says here. Jesus was tempted any way you've been tempted, he's been tempted. Somehow, that's what the book says, he has been tempted every way you've been tempted, yet without sin. He has been here, he has done this, he knows what you're going through, and there is a way to say no to it. You say, I can't say no to it. My whole life, I'm addicted to something. I'm trapped in this sin. I can't say no to it. God doesn't understand. He understands, and there is a way out. And when you go to Jesus, you say, Jesus, you got to help me. And you don't just say to him as a detached, some religious person way off there. You say, Jesus, you got to help me. You've been here. You know what this feels like. You didn't send my sin, but you know where I am. You know how I feel. You know what it's like to be hit with this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might what? Now look at these phrases. That we may obtain mercy. Why do you need mercy? If you've screwed up, you need mercy. If you don't think you can make it by yourself, you need some mercy, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At some point in my life and in your life, as you're rocking along and you hit these places and you are so exposed, you are so naked, you are so out there by yourself, you stop and you say, Lord, I need mercy if I've screwed up, but I need grace to help in time of need. I know it's coming again and I can't do this on my own. You've got to help me. And just like that, the grace shows up, the mercy you need to live this life that he asked us to live. Go over to Job chapter 29. Sin may blind us, but it doesn't blind God. Job 29, 14 says this, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. 
And I'll come back to this in just a minute. Jump over to Job 34, and I'm going to read a good piece of this chapter. Job 34, verse 21 and following. Without telling the whole story of Job, he's having conversation with God and three buddies that show up to help him through his just disastrous time. And verse 21 says this, for his eyes, talking about God, for his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You think, well, there are people in dark places and doing evil things and somehow we just get it dark enough God can't see it. Let me tell you something, you can't hide. I don't care where you are, what you're doing, God sees it all. From his vantage point, there is no place to hide. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Now look at this. God just says, you know what, enough. Mighty men. Someone thinks they're all that. I got it going on, I'm in control. I'm the ruler over all this. Look what the book says. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Just like that, you can be gone. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Why? Look at verse 27. Because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Whether it is against a nation or a man alone. When God says, you know what, enough's enough, whether it's one man, one woman, or an entire nation, it's done, it's over, you are cooked. Verse 30, that the hypocrites should not reign lest the people be ensnared. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more, teach me what I do not see, I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I, therefore speak what you know. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, a few pages to your right. No matter how naked, no matter what you've covered, what you're hiding, there is hope. Ecclesiastes, Solomon sums it all up. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. And he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And it's interesting that secret things can be good and evil. It's all coming out. Whatever you cover, God will uncover. Whatever you uncover, God will cover. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, New Testament. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now look at the words he uses here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. The word baptized was a commercial term that simply meant to put into. And not every time that the word baptized is used in the Bible does it necessarily mean it's about being baptized. The word literally meant you take a white cloth and you wanted to dye it red, you would baptize it in red dye. You would put it into the red dye. 
So he says here, as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if you are a Christian, what is the implication here? You are not naked anymore. You have a covering. Your covering is Christ himself. You have been put into Christ, and if you've been put into Christ, you have put on Christ Jesus. So when God sees you, let me tell you something. God ain't going to take me by myself. The only way God accepts me and will allow me to come into his presence is when I come, I come covered. And my covering is Jesus himself on the inside and the outside. When he sees me, he doesn't see me. The Bible talks about being wary or being aware or cautious of wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. It's the reverse here. We are wolves that have had sheep's clothing put on us, the lamb's clothing put on us. So where we would never have any access, he changes us from the inside out, and when God sees me, he sees Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, a few pages to the right. Ephesians 4 verse 17 and following. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness." So he's describing how the world lives and how we're not supposed to live anymore. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It's putting off an old man, it's putting on a new man. When you become a Christian, you get dressed, you get clothed, you get covered. And it is Christ that is this new man that you put on. And if you have done this and something is changing in your life, what is going to happen? You're not, like in verse 22, it says, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. You're not going to live and die going back to the same old junk. Something is going to change. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you're exposing yourself to the Word of God and the Word of God is living and powerful and it's doing its job and cutting you open and the intense and discerning what's going on in your heart, even your motives, it's going in there and doing its job and you cannot stay the same person. And you may have some sin that so easily besets you. I have mine, you have yours. But you know what? I keep going back to the Word. I keep going back to Jesus. And I say, you know what? you got to help me. I am not living and dying this way. Instead of just laying down and saying, you know what, that's it, I'm done, I'm stuck, I'm going to live this way, I can't change, that's it. That is a lie of the devil right there. If you choose to do that, that is your choice. But that is not the Spirit of God leading you to do that. You are not stuck, you are not hopeless, you are not helpless. Luke chapter 15, when the story of the lost son, some people call him the prodigal son, he leaves and wastes all his money, everything he has, his possessions with riotous living, it says. And then he decides to go home, and he gets home, and what happens? The father sees him, runs, throws his arms around his neck, kisses him. And look at verse 22. Just a simple thing that happens here, but pretty profound. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. 
But the phrase here, bring out the best robe, Matthew Henry in his commentary said this. Let me just read you a little of this. He came home in rags, and his father not only clothed him, but adorned him. He said to the servants who all attended their master upon notice that his son was come, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. The worst old clothes in the house might have served. And these had been good enough for him. But the father calls not for a coat, but for a robe, the garment of princes and great men, the best robe. There is a double emphasis here in the way it's written in the original. That robe, that principal robe, you know which I mean. The first robe, so it may be read, the robe he wore before he ran his ramble. When backsliders repent and do their first works, they shall be received and dressed in their first robes. Bring hither that robe and put it on him. He will be ashamed to wear it and think that it ill becomes him who comes home in such a dirty pickle, but put it on him and do not merely offer it to him. Put it on him. And then later down he says, first, the righteousness of Christ is the robe, that principal robe, with which they are clothed and put on the Lord Jesus Christ or clothed with that son. The robe of righteousness is the garment of salvation. A new nature is this best robe. True penitents are clothed with this being sanctified throughout. Now let me tell you what I think is so cool about God. No matter how far I go, no matter how far I run, no matter how hard I hide, his goodness, his gentleness leads me to repent and I decide to go home and respond to that love when I get home, he doesn't just run and fall on my neck and kiss me, but he says, get his robe. We're going to dress him just like he was when he left. This is my son. It's not second-class citizen. Now, the challenge we have is we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and every day of our lives, the devil comes along and says, who do you think you are? You know where you've been. You know who you are, and he starts punching you, starts punching you. I know who you are. What are you doing in that robe? Man, you'd be lucky, like you said, to be a servant here. What are you doing in that robe? You're nobody. You got nothing. Who do you think you are? If you don't know who you are, you can't answer that question. But if you ever find out who you are, you got an answer for that question. They overcame him, what? By the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives into death. You say, you know what, Satan? I really don't want to talk long to you in the first place. But whatever you're thinking may be true, but I've been covered. I've been made clean. I've been all those places you took me. And I got sucked in and I bit and I got bit, but I'm back. I was lost, I've been found. And my daddy says, I've been restored. And we're gonna pick up right where we left off. We'll get back to Richard in a moment to close out today's talk. But first, I wanna share something about our program. Our mission is actually very simple, to take the planet. So it's our prayer that these daily talks from Richard aren't something you only hear and enjoy, but that they inspire you to share with others. Together, we can do this. The message of the gospel is something everyone needs to hear, and that's why it's such a priority to us. So join us in this important mission. Call us at 855-6-RICHARD to say you're in. Or you can get on board with us through our website, richardellistalks.com. Well, here's Richard with some closing thoughts for us. I was born January 1st, 1960, and about six years later, in a little church, I think in Roanoke, Virginia, my dad was preaching in a church. And you know how there's certain things you don't remember about your childhood, but I don't even have to close my eyes. I was sitting on the front row, kind of 
to my dad's right, pew, feet couldn't even touch the ground, reading out of this book, the sword. Six-year-old little kid, my dad told the story. And all of a sudden, sitting there, one of the most real moments of my entire life is I was just acutely aware that there were two somethings fighting over my little soul. I didn't even know what a soul was, but I felt like I was being pulled in one direction and then another and then another. And somehow I figured out, I understood that there were two forces fighting over me and that whatever my daddy had been talking about, one of those voices was saying, get out of there, don't pay any attention to that, you don't need that. And the other one was a still small voice saying, you better do something about that, that's me. That's me he's talking about, and I love you, and my son died for you. And the reason I am so careful with little kids when they come and say, I don't want anybody to misunderstand, but let me tell you something, little bitty kids can get it, because this little bitty kid got it. And in that particular instance, he gave an invitation at the end, and all I had to do to go down front, stand up. I was down front. And finally, I said yes. And all I had to do was stand up, and I was home. I was born January 1st, 1960, fully unclothed. But on a day, a little Sunday in a little bitty church in 1966, I got my real birthday suit. And it doesn't mean there haven't been problems, and there won't be any more. But I don't have to go around naked anymore. And no matter how far I go, whether you know about it or not, I can choose to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be clean and be pure and be whole. And if it can work for me, it can certainly work for you. You've been listening to Richard Ellis Talks. We really appreciate that you've spent this time with us, but we want to keep the conversation going with you. A couple of ways you can connect with us is by giving us a call anytime at 855-6-RICHARD. That's 855-6-RICHARD. Another way is through our website, richardellistalks.com. You can email us, sign up to get the daily talks sent to your phone each day, write on the prayer wall where we can pray for you, or even stay in touch through our Facebook page at Talk with Richard. We love bringing you the program every day, but it means even more to us when you let us know how the program has helped you. So call 855-6-RICHARD or connect with us at our website, richardellistalks.com. Finally, if you enjoy the program, let us know by your generous support. It would really mean a lot to us. richardellistalks.com. So until next time, have a great day and thank you for listening to Richard Ellis Talks.